0: Now,
1: with that said, I get to go to the highlight of my day, okay, which is, as I was telling you, what, what I, how many times did I recommend people come to your sermon today, last week? Must have been at least 12, okay? Yeah, okay, because I'm telling you, this is that moment where uh, I had this sermon that God dropped in my heart at the last minute to change my sermon to, and then later on in that day, I got to hear what Serenity had on her heart to preach that I thought was God, And it couldn't have been a better one to punch. So in the spirit of what we do here, which is we're raising up people into the fullness of whom God has called them to be. And that includes, in my mind, proclaiming his word, right? Male and female, the whole way across the board, that we are his instruments to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, with an incredible insight, And as just an incredibly wonderful person and family in the whole nine yards, this is just one of my favorite people in the world. Would you please welcome Serenity Delaway?
0: Hi. At breakfast this morning, my husband was trying to get me to be less nervous, so we were trying to guess what Kurt was gonna say about me and how nice he was gonna be that, you know. When she smiles, the whole room will lights up. And when you know, she looks at you, she sees into your soul. And that was great, Kurt. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I'm Serenity Dillaway. Um, many of you know me, but I don't know everyone. So I'm just going to introduce myself a little bit. Um, before I do that, I'm just going to say that I am very nervous. I wasn't sure if I should say that, but I'm very nervous. So please give me grace and pray for me. Um, I don't do this. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I have three girls. Um, Before I had my daughters, I was a grant writer. Um, So I did fundraising for the ballet in Seattle, and then after my first daughter was born for a couple of uh, human service nonprofits, I like to sit in a cubicle and write alone. So that's sort of where I, the kind of person I am. I, I, this is not... My natural inclination, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. After my first daughter was born and I did some grant writing, God gave us twins. So my life for the last two years has been pretty occupied with the mom thing. Um, But before I get too far into that, I wanted to do a little bit of business because when I first told my amazing husband, Forrest, that I'd be doing this sermon, the first thing he said was, how can I support you? I'll take off work, I'll watch the girls, you can sleep through the night, whatever you need, I'm here for you. (laughs) The second thing he said was, does this mean that my picture gets put up there like Justine does, and everyone hears how handsome I am in front of the whole congregation? (laughs) Yes, Forrest, it does. Hmm, I need to turn that on, huh? I'm going to make you do that. If you want to look at him until then, he's right over there in the corner. (laughs) He's right there. I really want to embarrass him. There we go. Oh, Empowered Series. Mm -hmm. There he is. Isn't he handsome? That's him on our wedding day, almost seven years ago. He's worn that suit, I think, three times since then. He doesn't usually look like that, but I think he's handsome both ways. So, he's such a hunk. Um, Together, we have three girls, a four-year-old and two two two-year-olds. There they are. And I love this picture cuz they're not smiling. Aren't they? <laughs> and that's kind of who they are. They're kind of grumpy kids. They're getting better, but they're not like naturally joyful kids. I also love it because uh, Kimberly Jackson who took the photo and she showed it to me, she said, "Don't they look like those kids from like the 1870s where like, you know, Pa just got run over by the wagon or something." And you know what I mean? They all have the like, yeah. It just cracks me up. So that's Magnolia in the blue who's four, and Willow in the red and Rowan in the orange. So Those are my girls. So I've been on a journey over the last year, really relating to my family. Um, Two years ago, I had a really hard pregnancy and then they were born. And then I went through the first year of having twins in which there was no thought at all. There was only doing. Um, And I came out of that. Oh, before I do that, I just wanna thank everyone in this church. Sorry, back to the year of no thought and only doing. Thank you all, you were amazing. People came to us, they prayed for us, they held my babies while I ate, they brought food to my house. Um, People just really supported us and they helped my older daughter Magnolia get attention when I couldn't give it to her. So I want to take a moment. I haven't had a chance to say that to everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, But after that year when we sort of started standing on our own two feet again I started thinking and and really processing what I had been through and I started going on a journey. And I realized that now that I had this amazing family that I loved so much I was really scared For all the bad things that could happen I want to take this minute right now and ask you all to just take a second to think if you could ask God for one thing in this world just one thing what would it be and if you're away from the Cadillac nice house side of things go move over to the you know good godly things but just I'm sure it'll come right to your mind right I'm gonna tell you three because I'm up here and I can Um, I would ask for health for my daughters that they would grow up strong and good people I would ask for a long and happy marriage to my husband, and I would ask for the people that I love to come to know Christ. Over the last year, I've been really struggling with the fact that I have received no guarantees that those things will happen. I love my daughters, and there are no personal guarantees to me from God, there may be for you, and there are no guarantees in the Bible that one of them won't, God forbid, get cancer and die. That might happen. In fact, I know what happens to Christians, because I have friends who it's happened to. There's no thing that says that my husband won't get in a car accident tomorrow. Our livelihood will be taken away, and my world will fall apart. I've been really struggling with this. That's a hard thing for me. And so, what I want to talk about today is learning to function in that uncertainty. How do you move forward as a Christian when you know God gives you promises, but they're not really always for what you want them to be? I want my kids to grow up and be amazing women in God. God doesn't tell me that that's going to happen. So how do I move forward in what God is calling me to do? With no guarantees. So now we're going to pray. And Kimberly Jackson, who has been amazing uh, auntie, grandmother, mentor to me and my daughters, um, uh, pray for the sermon and lift up the church. Oh, Lord Jesus, Father God, I just... I thank you, Lord, if we um, but ask you. You will speak to us, Lord. And um, as Serenity delivers this message, Lord, that you have given to her, may our hearts and our minds be open to receive it, Father. And um, may we be better people walking out the door than than what we came in as. And Lord, I just lift up um, the church in China, um, mostly because that's where Serenity's parents uh, spent the last dozen years, Lord, and I just lift up the church in Shanghai and in uh, Beijing Christian International Fellowship and the church in Guangzhou, where the Lou's are. Lord Jesus, may China uh, raise their head and raise their hands to you and glorify you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, my mom's actually there on a business trip, so hi, mom. As I was starting to sort of cope with this and um and really going to God and wrestling with him about my fears. I found a TED talk and then a book by a woman named Brene Brown, who some of you may have heard of. She did an amazing TED talk a few years ago on shame and vulnerability. And she really resonated with me, partially because she's an author and a researcher and a professor. But she comes from a field of social work and that's what I studied as well. Um, so I really liked the way that she looked at the world and Brene Brown went through a midlife crisis, and when she did that, she saw these people out there in her research that she called wholehearted. These were people who embraced life fully, could really live and just be who they were supposed to be. They were wholehearted. And I think we all know people like that. And she, like me, was saying, what's different about those people? What is it that they have that I need to get there? So through her research, she started looking at these people. And what she realized was different was that they had connections to other people. And not to everyone, but they had certain people in their life, you know, spouses or brother or sister or good friends. And they had deep, rich, intimate connections with them. They could really be themselves and the other person could be themselves back. So like a good researcher asking questions, she said, so how do you get that? I want that. How do I get that? And she saw that these relationships were characterized by vulnerability, that people who had those connections could really be fully vulnerable with those other people. And I think that people who have connections like that, I've got one or two, that's what, that, that's what builds that relationship. You know, that moment that doesn't happen every day when you can really just bury your soul and say, this is who I am, warts and all, you know? And so she saw that you need to risk this vulnerability in order to get these connections. I think that resonates with at least me. So hard she asked right why don't we all do this if, if we know this is what we need why aren't we all doing this it's because when we risk vulnerability we risk feeling shame and because if the person doesn't respond in the right way and we show them kind of our not so pretty parts that's really shameful and and right now i kind of want to take a moment to be a little pedagogical um, and talk about shame versus guilt because when when a researcher or when a psychologist is talking about them they're two different things I think we say feeling guilty and we mean feeling ashamed they're not the same thing at least in what I'm talking about and so I'm gonna try to translate them into Christianese (laughs) Um, shame is feeling condemned it's a paralyzing place that you can't get out of it's when you do something bad and you say I'm a bad person I've always been a bad person. There's something, there are kinks in my soul. Nothing will ever be right. I can't do anything about this. Guilt is what I would say is called feeling convicted. It's a call to repentance. I did something wrong. I need to repent. I need to make it right. That's something that God can work with and God can work with condemnation, but that's something you can work with God on, right? So shame, you're kind of stuck there, but guilt is okay. I'm gonna apologize. I'm gonna say I'm sorry. I'm going to figure out a way to work with God to become the person he wants me to be. So I don't do this again, or as much, or as badly. And I'm going to share a little story um, to sort of show how this works. And this is a personal story about me feeling ashamed. So let's all just take that with a grain of salt. This isn't, like, easy for me to talk about. But um, this is just from a few weeks ago. Um, I was giving lunch to my daughters. And lunchtime in my house, remember, a four-year-old, two two two-year-olds is crazy, it's not fun. We have an hour to get to nap, I gotta get them fed, and everyone wants that break from each other. So this particular lunch was particularly crazy. The girls were just coming at me one thing after another, wanting this, that, this, that, this, that. And I hadn't eaten myself, I usually wait till they're asleep. And they were just asking me for thing after thing after thing, and I was getting more and more frazzled. They were legitimate requests, but if you've ever had someone ask you for stuff over and over and over again, you know, you start to get a little annoyed. Um, and I looked over at my daughter, Willow, who's two, and she was up to her elbows in tomato sauce. Something I told her not to do, but she's two. So I, I was just like, oh, now I have to clean you off, I have to change you, and then I have to get you to nap. Oh, one more step, right? So I went over, and I picked her up out of the chair, and she got her leg caught, it was like one of our dining room chairs, and she got her leg caught in the chair. And she started to cry in like a pain way. And I had picked her up a little roughly, So her leg was sort of stuck in this chair and she was doing this shrieking pain cry. So I'm not only worried, I'm also like having this noise come at me. Rowan, her twin, is over here and they're very empathetic with each other so she's shrieking too. And my daughter Magnolia is across the table, she's four years old, and she just starts looking at me going, did you break your leg, Mommy? Are you breaking her leg? Are you hurting her, Mommy? Are you hurting her? Is her leg broken? Why is she making that noise? And that's what I'm afraid of right now, right? That I'm breaking my daughter's leg. So I have two screaming and one peppering me with questions, confirming my worst fears about the situation. So I pick Willow out, I get her out of there, and I'm carrying her to the other room to sort of assess the damage, and they're both still shrieking, and Magnolia's still, did you break your leg, Mommy? Did you break your leg? Did you hurt her? What did you do, Mom? What did you do? And I just sort of lost it, and I said, not right now, Magnolia! And she kept going, did you break your leg, Mommy? Is she hurt? Did you hurt her, Mommy? Did you hurt her? I lost control. I mean, I just, there was no thought, and I screamed with, I mean, that guttural scream, not right now. And her little four-year-old face fell. And she just silent tears. And in that moment, I felt like the worst person in the world. So I got Willa settled. She was fine, just bruises. I got Rowan settled when she saw her sister was not, a, not a, in hurt anymore. And I apologized to Magnolia. I tried to be, you know, the good mom thing. I'm so sorry. Mama shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I lost my temper. Can you please forgive me? And she did. And I got them off to nap, and it was all okay. Except for in me. Because I was in this place of shame. I was not okay. Because a good mom doesn't scream at her kids. A good mom doesn't hurt her two-year-old in the first place. And then a good mom doesn't scream at her four-year-old who's showing empathy for her sister. Now she didn't do it right, right? She's four years old, she was annoying about it. But what she was doing was making sure that her little sister was okay. A good mom doesn't do that. A good mom doesn't lose control. A good mom doesn't speak to her kids like that. I was in a place of shame. And one of the hallmarks of shame is that you numb yourself. You can't even deal with the feeling. So they got to sleep, the first thing I did was turn on the stupidest TV show I could find. I did not even wanna think about it, right? You know? And so I'm sitting there watching TV and my husband comes home. And we've been working through some of this stuff because I read this book and I'm like telling him all about it because I'm so excited. And I tell him, you know what, I gotta be vulnerable. I screwed up today, big time. One of my not, probably one of my worst moments as a mom. And he listened. And through kind of what we've been talking about, the appropriate response, the good response when someone is vulnerable is to show them empathy. And that's what he did. He said, oh yeah, I get it, I've had bad moments, we've all done that with kids, you just lose control. They really, you know, push that last nerve and those chairs are really annoying and you know, he went through it all and I was able to move from this place where I'm a terrible mother to a place of guilt, which is where I should be. I did something wrong. I lost my temper at my children. I need to work with God to find more patience. I need to, I asked for repentance from my daughter and now I need to talk to God. How can I not do this again? Do I need to eat a granola bar so I'm not so hungry? Do I need to play good music, right? This is little stuff, right? But that's what's gonna help me from not screaming at my children. That's where I need to be. And empathy is what helps us get from there to there. And when we get that empathy, we can move to a place of enough. I'm a good enough mom. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good enough mom for these kids. That was a really huge revelation for me. And this is what the secular research says. But that Christian thing inside of me, that Holy Spirit, I I guess, was saying, ah, but you're not enough. Like, you're not enough. I still love you, you are still lovable. The author of love finds you lovable. But you're not, like, enough for this life that you have. And I realized that there is a life that I am enough for, but it's really small. If I pull in close enough, and I have enough control, and I'm a little less loving and a little less forgiving, I can make a life that I am enough for. But it's not the life that God is calling me to. It's certainly not the life that he wants for me. I realize there are three kinds of vulnerability, and here I'm stepping out of the research and into just what's going on in my brain, just so you guys know. Um, The first one is physical vulnerability, which is, will I have enough? And I think we deal with this less in this country, but a lot of people still deal with it. You know, will I have shelter? Will I have food? Will I keep my job? There's a lot of uncertainty around that. Those sorts of, will I have enough? There's emotional vulnerability, which is, can I be enough? Can I be strong enough? Can I be smart enough? Can I be successful enough? Can I be kind enough? Can I be patient enough? Um, And then there's spiritual vulnerability. And this is sort of the one that was dinging off in my head. Can he be enough? Is God going to be enough to do the things that I kind of need him to do? And I want to take a little moment here because I told a friend of mine, a non-Christian friend, last weekend what I was talking about. And he said, oh, it's a girl sermon. And I said, ah, I know that we talk as women about being enough a lot. But there are a lot of guys in my life who have expressed this in different ways. But this idea of not being enough There's an incredible amount of stress on my husband to be good at his job, to support our family. That's vulnerability right there. There's an incredible amount of stress on the men that I know to be man enough in every situation. And that's hard. And there's a lot of stress for all human beings to just be moral enough. That's not an easy thing to do. So I think that I think that we're having a conversation nationally about women and this sort of being enough, but I think that it's a larger conversation about being human, Um, maybe in different ways. So I realized that when I'm going for spiritual vulnerability, when I'm walking out and God's calling for me, I'm leaving myself incredibly physically and emotionally vulnerable and trusting in God's covering. And my life probably isn't the best example of that, but I'm gonna steal from Jamie and talk about going on missions, right? When you go on a missions trip uh, or into the missions field, you become incredibly physically vulnerable. Sometimes you're going to a dangerous place. You don't always know if there'll be provision. You don't know what it's gonna be like when you get there. You're becoming incredibly emotionally vulnerable. You don't know if you're gonna be smart enough or strong enough or patient enough or kind enough. You are the light of Christ in a place that doesn't know him. Gosh, that's a lot. And you're trusting in God to cover over those vulnerabilities. My husband's in tech and they have a saying that's a feature not a bug which is I meant to do that that's the point it wasn't a mistake that when we submit to God's calling for our life we become vulnerable to him and why is that a feature for God because vulnerability is necessary for connection which is the whole point right God makes us vulnerable to him to build deep intimate connections and this is not just for me this is from the Bible 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we're called again and again to be overly vulnerable in situations where no person in their right mind would be vulnerable. So that God and us can build a connection, it's crazy to sell everything you have and move overseas with very little plan. That's nuts, right? I mean, can we all just agree that like, if you're not believing in God, that is crazy talk. God's telling us to do it. Why is it so hard? Because there's going to be rejection, and we have to trust that God's going to fill that. When, uh, more close to home level, when I share my faith with a friend and I talk about like, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit's been doing some amazing things in my life and they look at me and are like, you really believe in that thing that comes and tells you to speak in tongues? That's a rejection that hurts, right? They think, they think you're stupid. That's a rejection and I have to trust that God's gonna make that okay. So here's where I hit another root problem, another roadblock for me because God's asking me to be vulnerable so I can build a connection with him. But if we go back to the beginning of what I was talking about, there are no guarantees that the things I want to happen are gonna happen. So he's saying, be vulnerable to me. Oh, but your husband might die in a crack student. I'm not okay with that. And I've been struggling with this for a year because I'm not okay with that. I wanna be okay with that, but I'm not. In fact, not only might it happen, Philippians 1.29 says, "'For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That granted, in some versions, is gifted. So not only are there no guarantees about bad things, we're going to get the gift of suffering while we step out and be increasingly vulnerable in Christ. I'm not, I'm not really okay with that, and I've been suffering, struggling with it for about a year now. Just really having a lot of trouble praying and figuring out with God, like, how am I supposed to do this? I was driving around a few weeks ago and feeling really not enough for my life. And I was telling God, I feel like these are, there are these cracks, right? Like there's too much being asked of me and I just can't do it all. Like I'm being stretched too far. There are so many people who need things of me and I just, I just can't do it all. And God showed me a vision, not a real vision I was driving, I could see the road, but I, you know, in my head, um, of a circle. And this is exactly what I was feeling like, the circle that had been stretched too far and there were these jagged cracks in me. I can't do it, I wanna be this whole circle, I'm not. And God showed me something like a liquid or a gas pouring in and filling in every one of those crevices, all those little things. And that was the Holy Spirit. And the circle became a full circle through the Holy Spirit. I can't make that circle whole. But the Holy Spirit could so that I can go out and be vulnerable but I'm pretty contrary so that's still not okay with me sorry God I get it but here's the problem in my mind I thanked God for the vision and then I asked him more questions if I walk out in God's calling for me I will screw up I will right I mean let's just all be honest with ourselves I'm gonna make a mistake even if I'm not in God's calling if I'm in my own decisions I'm really gonna screw up right But at this point, my life is too big for what I should be able to do, right? Like, I've let God stretch me to a life that is bigger than what I should have. So when I fail, I'm going to feel like the full weight of the inadequacies, more than if I'd started here. Does that make sense? These cracks are going to be way huge at this point, because I'm going to fail. And then my shame is going to be even deeper because I was doing things that I had no business doing in the first place. Romans 8.1 says that there's no condemnation in Christ, so I should not be feeling that shame. But I'm gonna, because I'm a person. And God reminded me of what the antidote to shame is, and that's empathy. And he reminded me that one of the coolest things God did through Christ, he did other things, but was to give God full empathy with us. So that when I screw up big time, Christ can have empathy with me and I can feel it from him. Because my response when I make a, make a mistake is stop whining. You have everything you could ever need, support of friends, of family, a house, food, whatever. Get up, dust off, move forward, knock it off. That's what I tell myself. And that's probably true, right? I do. I live in an amazing place. I have amazing friends and family. But it's not moving me forward on this journey. It's not bringing me back to God. It's just making me feel worse. God's response is something like, yeah, I know what it feels to feel fear. I know what it feels to feel rejection from your friends. And I know on the cross what it feels to feel that shame. It is hard. I am sorry, and I'm here, and you know what? I love you. I still died for you. That's something that moves me to a place where I can work with God to get better, right? I can get better when I'm in that place, when God shows me that love. One of the coolest things that I have ever heard about God in relation to this, I realized while I was writing this sermon. I was trying to find a word for this enoughness, this like I feel enough or weight of my inadequacies or not enoughness, and I couldn't quite find the word. And then I realized that God had a word for it thousands of years ago. It's shalom. We use it as peace, and, and it does mean that, but it means more than that. And, and I know some of you know that because you taught it to me. <laughs> I didn't like come up with this on my own. Um, shalom means completeness. It means wholeness. It means contentment and well-being. It means filling in the circle with the Holy Spirit. And it's something that only God can give to us. That enoughness comes from God. This all comes back to what we've been doing at Lake Sam. I think we've been really trying to step out in faith, pursue the Holy Spirit, and do things that are maybe difficult or uncomfortable, to see what God is doing in this church. And I think for some people that's totally run in the mill. You all have done that before. But for me, that's hard. And it takes a lot of bravery to step forward and say say a word in front of the entire church, saying, God told me this. It takes a lot of bravery to speak in tongues in front of a room full of people, some of whom you've never met. And the thing I think that takes the most bravery is to give a word to someone and to be in a church where we feel honest with each other and really can be open and say, that just doesn't bear witness with me. That's hard. That's crazy to go up to someone and say, I think Jesus told me this. And they're like, ah, sorry, maybe, you know, That's, that takes a lot of bravery to step out. And I, I honor and praise God for what he's doing, but I just want to honor everyone here for taking those steps. Because it's not an easy thing. Kurt asked me to put this in, this isn't something that I would normally confess, but this sermon is that for me. As I said before, I like to sit in a cubicle, not talking to anyone. I emailed Kurt, look at all the cool things God's doing in my life. And he said, cool, you should preach it. And I nearly threw up. (laughs) And then I prayed about it and I said, I'd do it. But this isn't something I ever aspired to. And this is me trying to do the brave thing and trusting God to fill in the gaps. It was funny, I was saying, you know, if I screw up too much, I'll just point to the circle and be like, hey, God's filling in all the gaps because I just screwed up the sermon, sorry. So I'm proud of us. I mean, not not of myself. That's not what I'm trying to do here, but I'm saying I know what that feels like. It's hard. So I want to challenge us today because there are no guarantees that the things that we are most afraid of won't happen. And there are no guarantees that the things we want to happen will. But God does say in Isaiah, Isaiah 20, oh, oh, sorry. Things of the spirit, foolishness. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Isaiah 26, three. I learned like eight days ago that that perfect peace is shalom. God will keep us in shalom and completeness if our minds are eye on the ball for God and we trust and are vulnerable with him. So there are no guarantees that my daughters will grow up healthy. There are no guarantees that I'll have a long and happy marriage. There are no guarantees that the people I love will come to know Christ. But God promises me that he's going to keep me in shalom. So here's the challenge. Be brave. I think God picks the things that are hard for specifically us. For some of you this would be old hat standing up here right brothers of you watching a baby that you don't know would be terrifying whatever that thing is be brave doing it do the vulnerable thing that God is calling you to and take God at his word I love taking God at his word it's one of my favorite things to do to say you said it Jesus mm-hmm I got you. you will keep in perfect peace Him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Okay, God, keep me in perfect peace. Mm -hmm. You said it. Because our world may fall apart. Look at Job. He was an incredibly godly man and everything. He lost everything. God was still with him. Our world may fall apart, but we will receive shalom. I want to end with a prayer. God, I want to thank you for the amazing things that you have done in this church, the transformations in people that I have seen and that others have seen. I pray that you would help us spur us on to action, help us see where you're doing your work, and help us to have the bravery to step forward. And when we step forward and when we make mistakes, Lord, I just pray that you would give us that shalom, and that you would help others in this church to show empathy and to really be there for each other to help be conduits of that. Thank you again for your amazing work.
1: Amen.